0: On a, on a scale of 1 to 10, <clears throat> mm. how scared of raw chicken are you?
1: Oh, I'd I, really, I like I'd say I'm probably about a 7. Uh, I really dislike it to the point where I'll often get mon to cut the chicken up. Yeah, right. Yeah,
0: I, I, I reckon I'm higher than that. I'm like a 9. Like Anything really? that touches the chicken has to be like washed and rewashed and my hand's just constantly washing.
1: It's just like, I don't know
0: why, but I'm so scared of raw chicken
1: It's a it's a dangerous game like this <laughs> cutting up chicken stuff you know covid aside i mean cutting up chicken <laughs> fucking hell uh, I can handle covid but uh, I mean, <laughs> but raw chicken, chicken <laughs> <laughs> steer clear that that strikes fear into the heart <laughs> Welcome to Production Brief, a podcast for the advertising production industry. Each episode, we interview members of our industry to hear their views on working during COVID-19. My name is Mark Welker and with me is Brendan Lee. Hi, how's it going, Mark? Not too bad. Uh, It has been a little while since our last episode. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe we might need to explain uh, that absence. Yeah, I had a baby. No, I'm okay. not, I didn't. Another one, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> How that was I've heard How that did people that are taking on new projects <laughs> during COVID nineteen, but uh, yeah, adding another child to it. <sighs> <Yeah.
0: laughs> you make it sound like I've got thousands, but 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 in truth, uh, I I just didn't really feel like doing a podcast. Been a bit blah, I think, with all these lockdowns in Melbourne. Um, you know, lack, lacking a little bit of motivation. What about you?
1: Yeah, I think um, this version of lockdown is uh, is hurting a little bit more than all the others. And yeah. um, for those that aren't up to date, I'm sure most of you are, um, we're in pretty much forced lockdown for our um, industry and for most industries. Mm. And um, uh, cases are going down. I think we're recording this um, on, what is the day today? The 19th? Uh, 17th. The 17th. 17th. Recording this on the 17th, and we're down to 28 cases, but it's a long road to go. Yeah, Uh, our industry at this stage um, won't open back up until after October 26th. And we've been in, you know, mostly lockdown since probably the week before um, August started, Mm. Um, Mm. and even then, before then. Um, for the month leading up, uh, for most of July, our numbers were high enough that um, most of the work got scared away.
0: Mm, mm-hmm. But we're back now. We're back yes. on the mics. We're back doing the podcast. Um, we're back, uh, you know, to, speaking to interesting people about about how they're working and, and what they're doing. Um, you know, just to keep us all to keep us all going, to keep us all motivated, and, and get ready for when we do return.
1: Yeah. And so today's episode, we thought we would leave our bubble uh, for a moment Mm. and chat with uh, Patrick O'Sullivan, uh, also known as the Wandering DP uh, Mm. from his popular podcast, Mm -hmm. um, who resides in sunny WA, where apparently uh, COVID, uh, we're in post-COVID mode. Over there. Yeah,
0: yeah. He said it, has, it hasn't been busier really ever before at the moment over in WA. So, so plenty of work happening over there. Lucky for those guys. Um, but, but yeah, al- also a really interesting perspective. You know, um, he he Patrick often travelled for a lot of work. You know, we'd either be in in Sydney or Melbourne working, um, and as well as as well as doing international work. But with with COVID, all his travellers had to stop as well. So, really interesting to hear his thoughts on it. But but we don't just talk COVID with him.
1: No, I think you know one of the things we're really interested in is um, how his um, sort of dual role as mentor, a DP mentor, and deep commercial DP works. Um, what it's like uh, uh, operating as a DP in a place like Perth, and and how that lifestyle sort of plays out. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really quite interesting to hear how he balances the the workload. Um, because, you know, Wandering DP is up to, I think, 245 episodes. There's a lot of content on his website. He's a training mm-hmm. program. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I just wanted to know, you know, how, how does he actually get it all done?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's, he's definitely a very, very busy guy. And I've only had the pleasure of working with Patrick on, on one job, actually, that we brought him over for. So I don't know him super well. Um, I, I didn't actually really know how he started. But really interesting guy, as well as being a great cinematographer. Let's
1: hear from Patrick. So let's start by
0: just, you know, finding out who is Patrick O'Sullivan. Obviously, you and I have um, have had the pleasure of working together only once, uh, not enough probably, but um, but for people who don't know you, who is Patrick O'Sullivan?
2: Yeah, I guess by, by day, I'm a cinematographer, uh, was born uh, and raised in the States in America, in Los Angeles. And then uh, I met my wife uh, and moved down to Australia in what would, it, would have been like 2015, 2014, yeah, 2015. Right. Um, so yeah, big change for work coming from Los Angeles to here, but, uh, you know, so far so good with moving to Perth. It's, it's, it's been a wild ride, but I spent a lot more times on planes than I used to. You know? So <laughs> I don't really necessarily work a lot in Perth or I didn't before all the craziness, but, uh, but that's slowly well, changing. So, yeah.
0: What sort of work were you doing when you were over in LA?
2: Uh, so I was just visiting at the time. I used to play rugby. And I was traveling back and forth uh, during the season. I was in France at the time and traveling oh, back right. and forth in between the season, met my wife and uh, mm-hmm. and sort of changed from there. Um, so it was all, I started off in the business as a, I guess I would say a colorist assistant. It gave me a, a jump start on everybody else because I was able to have access to all the tools early on and see the kind mm-hmm. of material that was coming through and the kind of quality and what was expected, especially yeah. from commercial cinematographers, that, that sort of level of work that was coming in and because I didn't have time or footage to practice on uh, becoming a better colorist I was like well I'll just go out and shoot my own stuff and see if I can uh, use the time uh, when everybody went home if I could somehow get better at being a colorist and and quickly realize that it was more fun creating the problems than it was uh, fixing everybody else's problems in in (laughs) post-production at least for my personality that was that was really what started it all and was so was that back in LA or was that um over in Australia here no, that was in Los Angeles. And then when I moved, it was just know. the perfect time to sort of be like, Well, okay, let's let's do, you know, just continue shooting, basically.
0: Yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. And did you did you sort of study cinematography or, or did you just kinda of learn on the job and learn from looking at other people's work?
2: Not at all. I learned I learned from what I would say is the the new way to learn cinematography. And then it's just all of the resources that were available to me at the time. Like I would mm-hmm. I spent years on Vimeo and uh, you know, not to, uh, not over-exaggerating that years on Vimeo, just looking at other people's stuff and came up with a system to break down how they were lighting things and how they were exposing for things and the camera choices and the lens choices. And I did, um, you know, basically a, a degree in cinematography on my own in in my spare room yep. just for years. <laughs> and, uh, and that was, that was, was how all the education came about. Yeah. Was it something
0: that had always interest you, either cinematography or photography? Was it always a bit of a hobby even when you were playing rugby or
2: it was it just something that you kind of fell into in a way? Absolutely not. No, it was nothing, nothing like that. I didn't have hadn't taken a photograph with a real camera ever before I sort of started down the path. Uh, yeah. it was just, I saw something, you know, in, in conversations when you're in that world, um, in the film world, the cinematographers, even in the colorists uh, sort of world in that post-production side of things, you quickly find out how, you know, you you understand the economics of things and just how much money yeah. people can make. And that was mm-hmm. 100% the decision that was, there was an opportunity <laughs> there for, for, um, to, to, to make significantly more money than i'm making now <laughs> and it, yeah. can i do it basically and um, so that was it it was that was all there was to it yeah
0: fair enough uh so t- talk to us about the, the type of work you do you do a lot of tvc work yeah
2: i do mine uh, yeah i do mainly commercials i just did uh, we finished mm-hmm. uh, my first feature film uh, it's just come out actually in the states called i met a girl um, that was oh, two years ago i think we did that been, great thank you yeah it's been chaos I've sort of seeing that all come together and in the COVID times and, and hearing all the stories, but primarily, mm-hmm. I would say uh, I enjoy the commercial space the most. I like the the idea of being on different jobs all the time and working with different crews and different people. And um, you know, before all this traveling around and, and uh, you know getting to experience the world like that, so I would say mainly ninety nine percent commercials. What's the
0: distinction between you know? Patrick O'Sullivan as the, as the DP versus the podcast host. You've obviously got a, a fantastic podcast called The Wandering DP as well. Um, I don't know whether people have, have heard of it, but they should definitely take a listen. What, You know, how did that split happen?
2: Uh, it was all about, the, it was in that learning process of trying to figure out how people that were better than me were doing it. And, and cinematography mm-hmm. is great if you can be objective about where you're at with your skill set because you can see the results. If it looks like shit, you mm-hmm. did a bad job right? And other people are making things look good. They did a better job than you. It's really, really clear. And I just, Mm -hmm. I've always had a, you know, I've always been drawn to things. I think most individuals are where you can see immediately see results, right? Whether you're learning a language or you're learning cinematography or something. I want to see that when I put in the work, I get this benefit out of it, or I get this, uh, you know, whatever I put in, I get immediate feedback. And cinematography is that you learn one tip or one technique and you can say, wait a sec, okay, I saw, I, I see what's going on now. If I do this, this, and this, this actually happens. There's not some magic formula. You know, no one is born a great cinematographer. This, mm-hmm. it's, it's it takes skill. It takes practice. Mm-hmm. It takes uh, mm-hmm. messing it up quite a few times to, to have people trust you to deliver when, when they've actually got money, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, and do do you think that you know your experience of learning cinematography, um, you know, via Vimeo as you put it before? Do you, do you think that that sort of inspired you to help spread the message so that other cinematographers and and or or people coming up who want to be cinematographers could could get some advice from you, and that that's um got something to do with why you kicked off the podcast?
2: I, I think uh, you know, looking back, that would be a great thing to say that I was spurned to you know to help people. <laughs> and to <laughs> to push that message but in in reality it was a completely selfish act i needed to find out there was a cinematographer still is very successful commercial cinematographer in america called max goldman and mm-hmm. he was you know still is probably uh, one of my main inspirations for just someone that has has the skill and has repeatedly been able to pull off amazing results and stuff that when i shoot i, I wish my stuff looked more like that right and i needed to talk to him just to figure out like mm-hmm. how uh, uh, eventually Every cinematographer, and this has become rampant on my podcast. Every cinematographer gets to a point where, if you stick around long enough and you practice long enough and you build up the networks long enough, you get to an a area in your career where you have all of the tools, you have all of the toys, everything that you mm-hmm. have seen that has ever been made, you have access to that. But your yeah. stuff still looks like shit. And that, that is a moment <laughs> of, that's when it really kicks off. <laughs> it's like, wait, I really, I am really underwater here. I don't know what I'm doing. You know, I, I, have, mm-hmm. I'm, I, I know more than everybody else on set but that doesn't mean I'm any good that that means nothing and so max was significantly better um, at that point and, and still probably is so i reached out and was like well how am i going to get this person to talk to me for an hour to tell me how they did this i had a job coming up yeah. that was very much like one of his jobs and i thought well i could just write to him and ask him and it would take him you know hours and hours to respond or i could say that i had a podcast and he could come <sighs> on and then we could share then then you know that would be my in like how could i i think he would do that and then I just ran him. I didn't have a podcast. I just ran and sent him an email. And I said, hey, dude, I got a podcast, cinematographer, blah, blah, blah. Would you mind coming in and talking about this specific spot? And he said, yes. And, that, and we, we, that's, that's basically where it kicked off. And it worked so well that the next person was. Uh, have you ever told him that you actually just kicked off that podcast really just as an excuse to pick his brain? Now, funny thing, I, funny thing is, I he was probably the, one of the nicest guests I ever had on, and I still haven't talked to him since then. He doesn't even know. I'm sure he, I'm sure he doesn't even know. And that was the last time that I talked to him. I bet you he's an avid listener. I, I bet like, you he tunes in every week. <laughs> <laughs> Something tells me not, but yeah, that that's how it all kicked off. And then it, I was like, well, it worked once. Let's try again. And I just kept kept trying, and and people kept saying yes. There wasn't really, you know, I was sort of dumb luck. There wasn't any real cinematography podcast at the time. Uh, that was focused on talking to people long form uh, and that was I just sort of lucked into it and, and kept going from there and
1: Uh, Patrick you're up to 245 episodes now and I mean Wandering DP is is more than a podcast now Uh, you know you've got training materials you produce a lot of content I mean I guess the question is you said that you're a cinematographer by day and uh, a podcast host by night how long are your nights?
2: Uh, Yeah it's it's funny now it's it's I spend definitely more time doing things with the podcast and everything around the website and all of that. Like there's 245 of the main podcast, but there's probably another 400 of the, the podcast inside of Patreon, which is like a, a special group that get access to other materials, people that want to learn uh, more about it. Uh, and then there's live streams that I do every other week. So it's quite a bit of content. Um, so I would say the split probably, you know, 10% set and 90% doing stuff outside of it. But Wow. Um, Obviously, the onset stuff always takes precedent. It's just been sometimes it gets a little bit crazy, like doing the feature film at the same time as doing the podcast just takes a little bit of planning um, and uh, a little bit of scheduling. But you get there in the end.
1: Yeah. How do you maintain that balance? Because obviously, you know, being a DP was the initial goal uh, and it probably still is. You know, that's where you love Doing stuff, but building this this content empire, or let's let's call it an empire, must take a (laughs) lot of time. How do you decide? Okay, well, I now need to go and do this work as a DP, even though I imagine that your other side of it starts to generate an income in of itself.
2: Yeah, it's really always been uh, I do as much work as I can as a cinematographer. Uh, but in between i mean even the most successful people that we have had on the show and i keep track like i'm a, a very i try to be as objective about my myself and my career as I, as i can be and that involves taking really detailed notes and keeping business records on how many days i'm on set how many days i'm doing stuff that i'm not getting paid for how many days i'm doing stuff that i'm getting paid for and seeing it and as cinematographers you know you get paid quite well for the day but you you don't you, you're not working all of the time you know as, especially in commercials, it's not like you're going to be, uh, you know, if you're on set uh, ten days a month or fifteen days a month, that's a that, that's a lot of days to be on set. Uh, so you, you do have it is a career. Lucky enough, where where you do have some downtime, um, and it's just I guess it's planning for when it is busy. But when the work is on, I take the work and I, I figure out a way, and I'll do longer days and, and spend nights doing the podcast stuff. But when it's quieter, that allows me to build up a, um, a stockpile of. Uh, interviews with guests or other podcast ideas or other content ideas that allows me to get through and it's just really you know none of this happens overnight it's not like I didn't decide I want to do instead of doing the one just one podcast we want to do three and have you know uh, you know this membership group where people can sign up to learn more I didn't want any of that it's just like, oh this is an opportunity uh, you know you get certain emails people would constantly ask questions because now the podcast has shifted from just talking to other cinematographers to actually showing the work that I do and, and being very precise, and this is exactly how I did it, because this is the information that I wanted to know. I didn't want to know any of the fluff about, you know, why you chose a camera to help the story along, because, you know, I don't know, uh, Sarah gets cancer or something, so you wanted the lenses to be slightly softer. I didn't want any of that. I just wanted, how did you get the result? And that's the lighting, and that's the, the camera, the lenses, the combination of those. Uh, that's the kind of information I was looking for. So that's what I now pass on in the podcast, uh, because it was requested, basically. You know, it just sort of led me down that path.
1: And do you ever wonder whether there's a Patrick O'Sullivan sort of listening out there who's going to pick up all your tips and uh, and do it better? Uh, do you know what I mean? Like, Because then obviously, you know, it's a competitive sport in a way um, being uh, in production and sometimes some people keep their sort of their how tos quite close to your chest but you seem quite willing to tell people exactly how they could create the same work as you. Uh, how does that, ha, ha, how do you sort of um, sit with that kind of balance?
2: That, that's what I'm going for. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm lucky because not only has that happened, but it happens every day inside of the, this group on Patreon are people, they are very motivated cinematographers. There's lots of them out there that are trying to do commercial work. They want to do it full time and they want to uh, see all the benefits of the the fruits of the labor. You know, it's it's not just having the skill as a cinematographer of lighting and doing all that stuff. It's also the networking. It's also making sure that your website is up to date and having all those things. So it's it's like a little group to help. Um, What would it be like, uh, you know, if you were in venture capital, just getting that little seed group together and just seeing, okay, how big can we make everybody? And there are people in that group who are better than me at cinematography, like this kind of stuff that I like, I see that in the group because we're posting messages and there's feedback and people post their work in there all the time. And they are doing the exact same things that I do, but they do it better. Uh, And yeah, I mean, it's a problem if, if you're losing jobs to those people, but there's so much, there's like, they're, they're from all over the world. There's so much stuff happening that my career comes down to the network that I've built and people believing that I can deliver the results that they're after. It doesn't really have to do with, um, you know, competing against other people in my town or my area, or wherever it is. I think the better that we can make everybody, the, the more it's going to motivate me to go out there and be like, wait a sec, I just told somebody how to do this. And I still managed to fuck it up more than they did. Like what's going on here? Just it's, it's I don't, I don't think, I don't necessarily think of it as a uh, competition at all. It's like, these things are out there. Everybody else is doing it. Like you look at the top cinematographers, you break down their work, And, uh, you know, we get really nitpicky because you can be and you start to see that there are patterns. Everyone's doing the same exact thing. Just some people are a lot better at it. And it's not just knowing what to do, but it's like going through the process on set of, okay, when do you identify the problems and how do you fix those problems? And even if you know the problems, you may not have the team or the people or the uh, communication skills to get that problem fixed. So it's not just one thing, uh, but, but knowing that and having a firm base in all the technical stuff makes it significantly easier. I would be, I would be way better than I am now if this had existed for me and I think a lot of the, the people that listen to the show hopefully are better than 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 if it had not existed basically
0: it's interesting what you said before Patrick about you know you're not you're not born being a cinematographer you know it's something you need to practice and you need to learn uh, I actually early on in my career <laughs> wanted to be a cinematographer uh, when I was studying that's what I thought I wanted to do and that's where I focused at uni on on being behind the camera and lighting and all of that sort of thing and I knew all the technical things. I had a really good understanding of everything technical, but I just found that I just didn't have the eye for it. I just it wasn't creating beautiful frames. Do you do you think that, you know, having the eye for it is something that can be learned as well uh, uh, alongside the technical side of it?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I am, I, if, if my career is a testament to that, I, I have no eye. I'm a ter- I was terrible at taking photographs. I had no idea what I was doing, but if you sit down, I mean, if you do anything for the amount of time that I looked at, nice images, you start to see the patterns. And as soon as you come up with a formula for those patterns, and it makes it sound, and this is what I get all the time from uh, anytime I do other podcasts where I talk about this, which is necessar- not necessarily what I talk about on my podcast, is uh, breaking things down into a formula. It makes it sound gross. It makes it sound like uh, you know, you're, you're diminishing what other people who consider them, themselves artists to, to be doing. And it's, it's not that. It's just you can't fight the fact that there is, if you want to make something look good, I already know I know how you're going to do it. Even if you don't want to say you're following the formula, I know it right now. I can't do it, but I know what you're doing. Like I I see the tricks and you, you can tell other people that those tricks aren't being used, but you can't tell me, right? I know I've seen it enough times. I know that you're, (laughs) I know that I know what you're doing and I probably have a nickname for whatever technique that is. Right. Some people, it's like, if you're really good at boxing, you know, it's going to be a jab and a hook and an uppercut. That doesn't mean you can stop it. That doesn't mean you can you know you can defend against it it's just like that's there's only so many tools in the kit and i think like you say coming up with your own frames and breaking things down and uh going into that uh, mode of finding nice frames is a big part of it but that's repetition too like that's that's understanding okay like i had at one point uh before all of the like now there's shot deck and stuff where you can find reference images really easily but at one point when I, when I was in that Vimeo world of learning, I had a reference catalog for every situation you could ever think of any situation, like broken down into folders for uh, kitchen day, uh, noon look, I had folder and images filled with it. So when I would get something for a commercial and it it'd be like, well, we're going to do kitchen, but we want it to be like a three o'clock look, boom. I had a hundred different stills that I could look at and be like, mm, I like that. and then, okay, how did they do that one? Oh, this is what they did. They did a, B and C. I tell the team, listen, we're going to do A, B, and C. And they go, okay. And then it happens. And it's like, well, that's how you do it. <laughs> it's, not, it's not more complicated than that, unless you want it to be.
1: Uh, Patrick, I wanted to ask about um, being a DP in Perth. Um, I'm originally from Perth. I've been here 10 years. And part of why I moved to Melbourne uh, was to be closer to the production industry and, and what happens here. Um, uh, but I've never really experienced um, being in that production industry in Perth. How, uh, how does it work being a DP in, you know, one of the most isolated cities uh, in the world,
2: really? We, it works as a, it works as a pro. And then there are some serious cons. The, the pro is that because all of the work is elsewhere, the, the competition is, is not as, there's not, you know, a hundred different cinematographers showing up to the, to the ASC or the ACS meetings, you know, it's about five people and about two of those are actually working and the other people that want to be cinematographers. So there's not a lot of uh, competition for the commercials that are being shot here. The flip side of that is there's not a lot of stuff being shot here. There's not, there's not like a brand. um, There's not, yeah, there's, there's no, there's no brand jobs that get shot here, except unless it's like something government and then anything brand usually has bigger budgets, which means they bring in outside people to do those things because they don't trust that the industry can, can pull it off. So you're, you're, you're limited in the kinds of jobs that you're going to get here for sure. This is, I would say if you're a cinematographer and it's not me like saying, don't come here, but it is, it's sort of a career graveyard. There's, there's not many opportunities. If you're going to stay here to create things that you can put on your reel and attract attention from, uh, the kind of things that get done in Sydney or Melbourne or something like that in a bigger market. So there's pros and cons to it for sure. But, um, so far, for me, it's it's been a good balance. You know, it's cinematography, much like the podcast side of things, I've never been someone that, that just puts all their eggs in one basket and be like, yep, uh, this is it. I'm going to be a cinematographer forever. This is the love of my life. Uh, all of the businesses can go away. I've always had stuff outside of it, and that's what originally brought us to Perth was outside businesses. Um, so it's just sort of a tag um, on a whole host of other things that I'm doing, uh, but it works out well here in Perth.
1: Yeah. How do you make it work? Like how much local production versus travel? And um, yeah, how do you make a living there?
2: At, at, at the time, before pre-COVID, I would say it was, you know, sort of 25% international jobs, uh, 50% Sydney, Melbourne, and then 25% uh, back in Perth. So it is a lot of time on planes, a lot of times getting out and networking and stuff like Instagram and, and all the social media has, you know, changed really how directors and production companies find cinematographers where it was before you had to be on a roster. They had to send you out with your name and your little tape and your little thing. Um, that has sort of gone away. So as long as you can get your voice out there and show you, Hey, this is the image, this is the images that I make. Someone will find you, you know, people will find you if you put yourself out there. So that has, it hasn't really limited me in my opportunities abroad living in Perth. It just means, you know, to get to Los Angeles, it, it takes another five hour flight or something like that, uh, tacked onto the to the Sydney leg, if you know what I mean. It hasn't really limited me there, but travel does become a huge pain in the ass. And, uh, you know, but it's, I guess it's worth the trade-off for the lifestyle.
0: Yeah, of course, and I mean, interestingly, though, uh, you know, now now that we're in this COVID, um, this COVID space, travel is obviously very limited. But um, just in our in our pre-prod chats over email, you said that it hasn't been busier in Perth at the moment. So I imagine that that you know, fifty percent interstate, twenty five percent overseas, and twenty five percent locally has has really changed, I guess, to one hundred percent locally because you can't travel. Uh, but but has the has the amount of work actually picked up over
2: there? yeah. As I said before, it's okay. never been busier in the five years that I've been working here. And that's by, by a magnitude uh, quite a bit, like a double what I would say what has been the busiest of years. And that's strictly because uh, the last, I wanna say the last six jobs have all been directors on iPads and producers on iPads and agencies all remote. Everyone, because for a time it was really only WA that was issuing film permits. Like the, you were the, the only spot you could get an actual production on right in the thick of it. Like as the COVID shutdown was getting crazy, uh, you know your aprils we were still shooting like big commercials because we were the only place open and uh, you know we had enough of a crew base and enough skill in those areas to, to still be able to pull off the bigger productions and to have a solution for remote right away like we everyone was on its way the whole industry got into the whole remote thing straight away all the people all the crew members jumped on board and realized that hey this is a chance to to not only show people what we can do but but also to attract some of those Bigger brands that would never, ever shoot here. I mean, the last, yeah, the last three jobs are brands that would never, ever shoot here or have never shot here before, only because the director could be on an iPad sitting in Sydney and, and, uh, and so could all the agency. And we had uh, the amount of talent and the variance and still had the Australian accents and people that were speaking. And that's just really, really has been a, a, like a huge, yeah, a huge pickup for the industry. Yeah, we've spoken to quite a few people. Obviously, obviously, this
0: podcast was kind of started, you know, to to talk to people about how they were working during COVID and how remote things um, are are possible. And and it's something that I've done a few times now as well. You know, we're in our second lot of shutdown here in Melbourne, so have had to move shoots recently interstate, which, I mean, you you don't necessarily like to do either because you want to keep your local crew working, who who you've had working. But, But it has been kind of seamless it sort of works pretty well have, have you found the process to be to be pretty good having a remote director as well
2: yeah i've seen it done really really well and i've seen it done really really poorly and it really sink ships and it all comes down to uh, i guess how comfortable the director is in communicating with lots of different people at the same time because you don't realize at least from a cinematographer's point of view you know, you get those moments to steal the director for a little conversation by the monitor or something like that like as in between takes or real quick little spots <laughs> but you don't realize how many uh, other just people just to
0: interrupt you there you. as a producer i need to say i hate those little moments because there's things that are coming up with that are going to be putting into overtime it's going to be a bigger lamp exactly. it's going to be
2: whatever <laughs> anyway sorry to interrupt please go on <laughs> no but that's exactly right those little things where you're like oh you know just be a little bit better if we did this or a little bit better but you know every other head of department or every or producer or agency person or they all want that little tiny you know they're all missing those little tiny moments so in the in the remote world when it, the director is on you know because they'll be on a separate zoom call with the agency seeing the feed um, and usually if the, if the producer's remote they'll be on that same feed but then they'll need the director will need another feed to the first AD uh, the onset person who's carrying them around, which is usually like a production assistant and myself and the production designer who's there on set or the art director. So they're working on two different feeds and managing that and muting one at the right time and not one at the wrong time. Uh, it just takes a director to, that that is willing to sit down in a spot for 12 hours and and be on Zoom calls. Like it's crazy the the amount of work and then the stress of not being able to be there and just be like, okay, look right. like just Like just see a solution to the right or left of frame. Uh, So I've seen it done really well, which normally involves like a seamless plan from the start. These are the calls. Everybody log in at this time uh, for the agency and everything. The producer, they look after that side of things and they get clean feeds and there's nothing wrong with the connection. And the director understands, okay, it's going to go slightly slower at the start. But usually after about the first setup, it's like as soon as the the person who's wheeling the director around and they're loud enough and the talent can hear them, it's seamless. Like there is no difference. To working in person from a crew point of view, from a cinematographer point of view, there's nothing. Um, and, and in fact, it's actually, it's actually slightly better because I'm involved much earlier on in the process now. Like because the director isn't here to go location scouting or tech scouting, you, you're, you're out there. And then you become the editor that is feeding the director, well, this location is probably better. You know, like this, we might want to start here versus, you know, usually when you jump on a commercial as a cinematographer, the location's already chosen. The, the boards have probably already been drawn up and you're there to sort of deal with the issues that have been created. Whereas now, again, I'm, I'm back to creating issues. Yeah, which is, which was actually
0: going to lead me into my next question, which was about pre-production and, and you know, how pre-production is different now. You know, initial location recs, like you say, would often just be done, you know, a director, DP, maybe a production designer tagging, uh, sorry, director, producer and maybe a production designer tagging along for, for those initial visits to location and then, and then bring the DP out a bit later, like you say, once it's been chosen. But but now how much are you being relied on to, to get to spaces and kind of saying, well, we could make it work like this or we could make it work like that or this just won't work full stop? You know, how, how much more reliance is being put on you as a cinematographer um, uh, to, to help find those solutions in a remote shooting world?
2: Yeah, I'd say the job has completely changed. So it's gone from, you know, that would happen where I would be involved in location, scouting the process, maybe that would be 10% of the time, like to actually be like, not just look at the images on an, in an email thread and be like, yeah, I like, you know, one better than two or something like that, but actually be there when we're trying to narrow down the locations to show the agency that maybe 10% of the time now it's a hundred. So it's completely changed, which means also the schedule For work has changed like when you can make yourself available and how you charge for those pre-days because now they're eating into other shoot days you know just changes the whole business model really because every job like the thing that i why i like cinematography and don't like directing is because you don't have to deal with any of that stuff and now you do (laughs) so now you know now you have to deal with more of those conversations with agency with production of like okay, this, you know, option A is really good. Option B is pretty good too. Option C is is not very good, but the schedule works or we know somebody there uh, and you have to be involved in those calls early on. So it's the the pre-production has definitely, uh, you know, if not double, tripled the amount of work that I would normally be doing for commercials from from a producing
0: perspective you know I'm 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 thrilled that there's been a lot more detail in pre-production I, I feel like it's it's negated a lot of problems that you often do run into on set that could have been solved in pre and not not just from a cinematography perspective but from a sound perspective and a costume perspective and and every perspective we're we're finding we're having to lock things in a lot earlier um to make sure everybody's on board because we know on the day we're not going to have that flexibility to just go oh quickly can you just go run in that and pop that jacket on and just come back and show us because everything is taking longer it's all slower doing doing remote shoots is is a lot more difficult um i I did want to ask you though about um you know your your travel overseas and your travel interstate and and doing those sort of works whether you're missing doing that because of COVID or or whether you're kind of comfortable that everything's
2: coming over, over there to you now. Yeah, no, I don't miss it at all. I, I had a point where I think it was 20, yeah, it was 2019, maybe 2019, 2018, where we just wrapped up the film and in like in a 12 month span, I had done, I think 11 trips to the States and like three or four trips to Sydney and Melbourne. I was just like over it. I was like, that's it. No more. I'm not going for the shitty, you know, retail spot that is four days just for the money anymore. I'm not getting on the plane. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to stay around um, and see what happens. And, you know, the inevitable, you, you already know what the results are when you see what happens. Nothing happens. Like the work slows because there's just not that much work here. Um, and it's a trade off. Like, okay, luckily I'm in a position where, you know, I, I have uh, other businesses that will allow me to do that. So I'm I'm fortunate there, but I don't miss the travel at all. Like I just never. Uh, I'd done enough traveling with all the rugby and the, with all the stuff before that. No, it's, it's not a, a real big miss. I I miss the working with the directors that I used to work with on those travel jobs, on, you know, on away jobs. You miss those crews and you miss that fun. But the actual experience of doing it is is terrible. And that was probably like that's what I caution people against the most is if you look at really successful cinematographers, there is a pattern that happens. Like you, you have to embrace that side of life of, of that you're not going to see your family for a long ass time. If and the more popular you get, the better you get, the more, you're not going to see them you're going to be on a plane in Mexico city then you're going to be in Kiev then you're going to be in who knows where, and the jobs are going to look great, but your life is going to suck unless you really love that. Like you got to really love it. And yeah. Going to, uh, you know, Serbia sounds like an awesome time once. And then you do yeah. it four times and you're like, fuck, yeah. I gotta to go to Serbia. Yeah, it's like a bus with wings. Somebody once said to me. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy, and, and I mean, and but you, know, it's it's hard to tell someone that when they see you know these crazy productions that they want to be a part of, and they don't realize the life behind that. But as soon as you get a little taste of it, no, I'm I'm, I'm very happy where I am here to be doing to be doing this. For a those international jobs are often quite
0: quick as well you know you sort of you you fly in you might have a day on the ground then you shoot something and then you, you fly out it's not necessarily the glamorous uh, lifestyle that that people
2: people imagine no not not anywhere close i mean you're there you fly into a spot you hang out with the director and the producer and the first ad maybe and uh, you know you see the hotel and then you see the locations and then you're on the plane back home again um, trying to catch up on the days that you missed so it can be it can be taxing but that is that is you know, and I think it was really for me after doing the film, being like, well, you know, maybe the film will be different. The film will be that other thing that will help kickstart this next level of the career. Well, you know, I really want to be the, you know, the next Roger Deakins or Chivo or something like that. It's, I mean, that is, it's, that's, you're not just making a choice about the work that you're doing. That is such a huge, huge sacrifice to, to other things. The, the, what your, the opportunity costs of doing something like that, like it would be great. I would love absolutely love to have the revenant on my reel and have say, yeah, I shot that. If you paid me, I don't know how much money it would take me to go to Canada, you know, for fucking two years, two years of my life, of my kid's life. I'm like, oh my God. I don't know if I, I I know I wouldn't do it. And so then it's like, okay, well, if I, if I'm not going to do that, if I'm not going to chase the very pinnacle of the um, arena, what am I doing? Like, what, what am I happy doing?
0: Yeah, and, and do you ever do you ever you know you're shooting a job overseas, and do you ever think we could have shot this in Perth? There's nothing here that <laughs> that says that this is Prague. Um, we're in a cafe.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I definitely do. I don't really. The the only reason that that wouldn't come up for me, I guess, is because I don't. I, it's not like we're doing. It's not like those Perth jobs are happening internationally. It just happens to be an international job that I'm on air. But definitely all the time, I'd say yeah. I mean, I could do this, and and which comes into which I don't know you 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 guys might um. Lead down this path, but looking at how well it's worked remotely for directors and producers and agency and client, I, the technology is moving so quickly in the cinematography world that that I, I don't foresee a time uh, or a long time being where, where cinematographers are still on set. I just I just don't see it. I, I think I think it will go as well. It will change, um, and and cinematographers won't be there. And I might be I'm, you know ten years early, but the writing is on the wall that a cinematographer doesn't have to be there. So who knows?
1: And Patrick, when you say it doesn't have to be there, do you mean because um, everything's uh, done remotely, and you have, and and you have you participated in any shoots where you haven't actually been there before?
2: Yeah, I have on on smaller scale stuff, not like a full commercial all the way gone through, but just seeing what you can see now and the feeds that you can get out of the camera and the amount of pre production that you can do when you're not there like even getting away from studios like if you look at the like the volume led walls that are happening now um, and play with any of that technology there is no reason a cinematographer has to be there if you're using one of those setups like it's just not it doesn't have to be there you can put on the goggles you can be there uh, virtually and you can direct everything you need to know like my my job on set is you know I always say it is I am like the person who says yes it looks good or no it doesn't look good I'm not like moving the light I'm not uh, adjusting the, the aperture on the lens. There's people to do that at, at a certain point in commercials or in, in any production level. Once you get big enough, you're not really doing anything except saying, yes, it looks good or no, it doesn't look good. And if it doesn't look good, you have to come up with a solution. There's, there's none of that that requires you to be there. You know, it's just, it, it fits, it facilitates communication because you're there next to the people. But if everyone is on board with the cinematographer, not being there, you could get through a lot more jobs. It could be much more efficient. You could spend a lot less time on planes. It just takes everyone buying into that. And I think now it would be struggling. Like it would be really hard right now to do a full production, but the writing is on the wall. If a director and producer don't have to be there, uh, the, the next one down, who's doing the least amount of stuff is the cinematographer. And when I say stuff, I mean like hands-on, manipulating of things on set
1: what uh what kind of um feedback have you got from producers um on the remote shoots that you're doing now um do you get the feeling that this you know this this boom in production in Perth do you think that it will stick around for the foreseeable future do you feel like it's a viable enough alternative to just shoot remotely um, that even when things lift in Sydney and Melbourne and whatnot, that it will still, uh, that kind of work will still um, keep coming through?
2: No, no, not at all. I think as soon as it's lifted, it'll it'll go back to Sydney and Melbourne. Even, and not in the sense that it'll go back to everyone there. I think agencies in particular have been so positive to, you know, because they're just sitting on set all day. Sometimes it's fun for them, but really they're just sitting on set working and looking at the monitor when the director comes over to the tent. Like it's very, very, It's uh, the most productive, that if, if I was running an agency, I would want my five people there watching this thing when they could be just watching the feed when the director's happy or just watching the take that everybody likes. There's just so much downtime, so much wastage there that I think when it comes back to Sydney and Melbourne, I think they might stay home. Uh, everybody else goes back to in-person, but there's there's not enough, you know, to, to, to be honest, there's not enough skilled crew here to even facilitate the jobs that are happening now. Like, yeah, we're getting better, but the skilled crews in Melbourne and Sydney there's so much more volume there's so many more people so many more individuals who are really really good at their job and and those people are going to work and you're going to want those people on your productions I would imagine so for for a little bit it's it's picked up because of necessity but I think quickly it will it will go back to normal
1: and what about access to equipment in Perth how do you find getting uh, the things that you need to, you know, bring those images to life um, for larger commercials um, is everything that you need available locally, or is that one of the restrictions that you just have to live with?
2: They, that's one of the restrictions that you have to live with. The, the The crew scenario, the crew is is a huge one, right? I would say, legitimately, there's probably two solid, like what you would call your professional crews. Two. Once you get past that, that it's not like. Oh you, you get you get the the other gaffers pretty good. It's like there is no other gaffer. There's two light trucks in w the a there's two grip trucks so if you have if there's a, a long form thing going on like there's about to kick off a, a long form TV project here, if that kicks off, there's only one grip in town one person who has a dolly and a crane. so the commercial productions then go they they have to <laughs> you have to make sure that that person is available because if they're not, there is no production. Uh, the the same goes with all the other crew and all of the equipment like when directors come over even the remote stuff or even before the remote stuff it's just a, it's about shifting your idea of what is possible there's not you're not going to get a techno crane here uh, you know there's no panavision uh, dealership here or, or outlet here uh, you just have to again much like you were saying about pre-production being able to secure things much earlier if you do need any of that stuff you got to get it in immediately you got to get it sent over from uh, the eastern states to make it happen because there's not there well there's really no gear here there's a few little camera places but outside of that you're you're on your own for for choices that was a question that I was going to ask you
0: earlier as well you you sort of spoke about you know there's there's maybe one maybe two gaffers over there that that you know you you can work with when you are doing remote uh you know when when people are doing remote work you know the director i guess obviously has to have trust in you um a, as well as the the crew that are there how how much are they relying on you to sort of say oh gee who's the good who's a good crew that we can work with out of perth
2: a hundred percent oh and that's i mean that's just on that's on all the jobs really. No, no, I've never had anybody say which crew I should use. I'm always asked, you know, your preferences of who you would like to use, but that, that comes down to, and that's also a thing that, that, that we talk about often on my podcast for cinematographers is, yeah, you're responsible for the final image, but in the commercial world, you are a cog in the wheel and you have to know when to slot in, when to chime in, what things are important to talk about and who to talk about them with so that the the production does go seamlessly because it do, if it doesn't go seamlessly, you know, it is sort of your fault as well. It's not just the production. It's not just the director. If you choose, uh, you know, the, the, your crew that you put forward, that's a representation of the way you like to work and of you. If they fuck it up, it's your bad. Like you might get a bad grip or something like that, but you you put them forward, especially in such a small market like here. Yeah, if it, if it looks like shit because you got a bad gaffer or you got a bad grip or you can't do the move, it, it ultimately falls down on you. So having, uh, you know, the personality of someone that deals with pressure really well is, is going to help. And people that don't get too flustered or too crazy on set um, you know you hear stories from other crew members about some cinematographers work in different ways I'm, I'm very much uh, I try to be as relaxed as I can and, and try and be as helpful as I can and I think that comes off especially in the remote world it's like I'm I'm not saying no there's no way I'm saying no to any director's requests it's like yeah we let's get it done like we may not have all of the equipment it may go into overtime that's somebody else's problem I'm a yes I'm a yes let's do it like you know and but you have to obviously you have to uh, you know you have to ride that line between being production friendly and being director friendly i'm 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 trying to be everybody's friend right (laughs) if if there's a problem that i know is going to come up i'm not going to not tell the producer i'm going to be the first one there because they're going to recommend me for other stuff and i want to make sure that it comes in uh, as low cost as it can as best looking as it can i want to take everybody's boxes so it's knowing those other cogs in the wheel and what they're looking for and how you can slot in as fast as you can and one of those ways that you can slot in really quick and make everybody's job easier is tell them this is who I want this is who's going to make it easy for me this crew member this crew member this crew member this is the gear that I need all that stuff the easier and more seamless you can make that transition between not being on the job to to being in charge of the job uh, the better it's going to be both the result and your experience yeah of course of
0: course and and so what's next
2: for you what's uh what's on the cards Uh, it's just more commercials from here um you know October is Uh, not fully booked but 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 looking uh, better than ever basically and just managing that time and trying to you know trying to now find out which jobs to jump on and which jobs not to because it's not just the good jobs it's not just the the good jobs that are coming it's all the jobs like you don't realize how much little tiny stuff i've been contacted for you know little like uh I don't know, corporate like headshot videos where I would never do those things. But now people are just desperate because they can't fly anybody in. So it's, you know, also building up the network there, finding people that can do that kind of stuff and uh, and making it happen. So for me, it's more of the same commercials, podcasts, all that stuff.
0: Brilliant, brilliant. And I guess just waiting until, you know, borders reopen so so you can travel if you want to anymore <laughs> back over to eastern states or internationally. Yeah, that's it. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Patrick. Really appreciate it. Great insight into to what's happening over there. Our podcast does seem to focus mostly on, on things that are happening in Melbourne. So we do love chatting to people that are in other states. So so thank you um, for, for giving us your time today. So, Mark, as a native West Australian, where would you rather be now—back over in Perth or staying here in
1: grey locked down Melbourne? <laughs> oh, Melbourne for sure. I mean, <laughs> got so much time to spend, uh, like so much time to myself here. Yeah, it's so quiet yeah. in the evenings. Oh, um, yeah, I really—I've m-
0: actually—I I came to the realization recently that I've—I've I've actually got. Um, at home tracky dacks as well as going out tracky dacks <laughs> now as well which i never would have done in the past i would never have worn tracksuit pants outside the house but yeah. it's it's changing times mate it's a changing times
1: it, yeah i mean i've got a lot of family and friends in wa and i i wish i was a person that didn't get envious but um it's pretty hard to be uh, not envious of everyone else in australia yeah, right now yeah. Um, but it was really interesting to hear Patrick talk about that local industry mm, and how yeah. uh, how it works, you know where its benefits are, where its shortcomings are, mm-hmm. and the way that he has made a living. But I think one of the great yeah benefits of being in Melbourne is being able to really truly invest in one direction mm-hmm. um, if that's where your passion is. Um, yeah. um, I think that I would lose that if I um, ever went back to Perth I, I, it's always on my mind because I have a lot of family there um, yeah. but it's not something that I've found a solution to yet
0: and how, how about the idea of remote shooting in Perth I mean I, I I've had to send a couple of jobs away but I, I just kind of default to Sydney um, because I, I know and work with crew there as well um, but hadn't ever really considered Perth as an option but um, but maybe it
1: is a good option? Um, Weather wise it's you know super consistent.
0: Yeah. Well, look, we hope you got something out of today's episode. Um, and, and if you did, please subscribe via our website, productionbrief.com, so we can let you know when new episodes come out. Um, or you can, of course, subscribe via your favorite podcast platforms.
1: And if you found something useful in this episode or any others that we've put out, we'd love if you could just mention it to one other person. It really does help us get the word out there. Otherwise, uh, stay tuned for our next episode, which we promise will be sooner than the last.